Have you ever done shark cage diving? This thrilling activity, maybe in South Africa, getting real close to those sharks. How about skydiving? Wing walking? What about a dangerous job or profession like being a police officer, high risk, firefighter, uh, a roofer, working on roofs at high altitude. How about window washing for high-rise buildings? That looks pretty freaky. What does the Torah say about dangerous activities for sport, for profession? Today we'll talk about some of the preventive measures the Torah tells us to guard our life. Good afternoon. It's Tuesday, 12.15 p.m. Time for another session of Torah study. Today is Lunch and Learn number 167. Every Tuesday we take 60 minutes to explore another topic from a Jewish perspective. And today's lesson is titled Safety First. Some of the very important things that Torah tells us uh, that many people take for granted. And Torah has its own spin on things. So let's begin with a blessing. Good afternoon, Jody. Good afternoon, Roy. Good afternoon, Michael. Good afternoon, everybody joining live and those watching post live. <clears throat> Today's a very important lesson, an area of Jewish law and tradition which Torah guides us. Torah is a book of instruction for life, and all areas of life can be and should be guided by the teachings of the Torah. And how about smoking? What does Torah say about smoking? <clears throat> Are we allowed to smoke? How about um, having a lion as a pet? Some people are pretty, pretty daring. Would that be permitted according to Torah law? So let's jump right in to our session today <clears throat> on this fine Tuesday afternoon or whenever you're listening to this lesson. Today's lesson is divided into four sections. We'll begin with one mitzvah that the Torah explicitly talks about. We will examine and explore this idea and then bring a couple of examples, maybe not so well known, that the halacha refers to as preserving our life and then sum it up with a beautiful lesson. Source number one on our source sheets. When you build a new house, it begins with a quote from the Torah from the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Devarim. <clears throat> the mitzvah, there are 613 commandments in the Torah. One of these 613 is a mitzvah that perhaps not all of us are given the opportunity to fulfill, though some of us do. And we'll see today how we can fulfill this mitzvah. Source number one, when you build a new house. You shall make a guardrail for your roof. So besides choosing the color tile and so on, 
the mitzvah is that when we build a new house, we should take into account that if the roof is, is a dangerous place, it's a tall house, pretty much any roof is tall enough for it to be dangerous. So when you build a new house, you shall make a guardrail for your roof. If somebody goes up to the roof, there shall be a guardrail around the roof so that you shall not cause blood to be spilled in your house. So 3,334 years ago, God tells Moses to instruct the Jewish people that when they build a house, they shall make sure they have a mitzvah that around the roof of the home, there should be a guardrail, there should be a fence so that blood should not be spilled in your house. Even though you're not pushing anybody off the roof, but not taking the preventive measure of installing a fence to make sure that nobody falls, blood is being spilled in your house. And the Sifri, the Midrash, tells us all houses, not just newly built ones, not everybody actually builds a house from scratch, even though the Torah uses the words when you build a house, this refers to any home. You're moving into a home, you buy a home, you're renting a home, you are gifted a home, you inherited a home, whatever kind of home. If you're living in a home, the house which you're living in should be a safe home. And the specific case the Torah is talking about is that the roof should have a fence around it. The porch is a good example the porch should have a fence. There should not be even the opportunity, the <clears throat> situation where one might fall if they are not too careful. Putting up a fence is a mitzvah. Source number two, the roofs, which we do not use, are exempt from this law. So like our roofs that are, they are not flat. They are slanted probably because of the rain and snow. It's not good if it's sitting up there. So those roofs were not really meant to just walk on. They are exempt from the slot. But roofs in other countries, especially in, in, in Israel, where there are many flat roofs, people would use their roofs for storage, for drying their fruit, for laundry. It was open to the sun. And in those places, the climate was fit for it. It didn't rain that much didn't snow that much. So whether it's in Israel or even here, if we have a roof or a porch, a flat area which is high above the ground and there is reason to be worried that if somebody falls, their life will be endangered, there is a mitzvah to prevent that from happening by putting up a gate. Continuing here in Source 2, the height of the fence must be no less, not less, must not be less than 10 handbreadths high. Ten handbreaths. A handbreadth is about four inches, so that's about forty inches <clears throat> high. It should be so strong that if a man leans against it, it will not fall. It should be a strong gate that even if a child, but even if a man, it says, leans against it, it should not fall. So rooftops and other areas need to be gated. They need to be safe. And that is something that God is telling us to do. And this does not just refer to a gate around a, a roof, 
but this extends to other areas. Source number three, if a person has a well in his courtyard, remember back in the day, they didn't have running waters. This was a common, uh, every courtyard, every neighborhood had a couple of wells, which there was a danger that someone can fall in. It was a pit. He must erect a sand wall 10 handbreadths high around it or make a cover for it so that a person will not fall in and die because the reasoning of the Torah for the fence about somebody falling and dying can apply to other cases. So anytime where there is a situation where there is a danger that someone can fall and die, there is a mitzvah to put up a wall, to put up a gate. Similarly, it is a mitzvah to remove any obstacle that could pose a danger to life. And to be very careful regarding these matters. We take life and danger very seriously. The Torah says uh, any obstacle to life that, that can be dangerous for someone's life needs to be addressed and prevented. For example, having bars in the window of a high, of a high floor of a building, that could be a question if that is necessary it also makes it maybe difficult to escape. So there has to be a system, but that is something in question to make sure that nobody can just open the window, especially a child, and uh, be in a dangerous situation. Talmud tells a story of a girl falling into a well. It was the daughter of a man named Nechunia. Nechunia would dig wells for the pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem People should have access to water for bathing, for drinking. And his own daughter fell into this deep well and it was very difficult to get her out. And they went to the rabbi, Rabbi Hanina, and he prayed for her and he said, it cannot be that a man who dedicates his time and his... Um, to helping people with water that his own daughter should drown in a well. And indeed, she was saved miraculously. But we see this was a common obstacle, sort of. And therefore, there is this mitzvah to construct, to install a fence. And even if somebody is not trying to push someone into the well, push someone off the roof, if it happens, and you could have prevented it or done something to prevent it, then... That's called negligence. And that death is, in a certain way, attributed to that person. We're not going to go kill that person or punish that person uh, because they didn't actually do anything, but they could have done something to stop it, prevent it from happening. As we see in the mitzvah of Ir Miklat, city of refuge, source number four, anyone who unintentionally kills a person can flee to a city of refuge. So somebody unintentionally, he doesn't take a gun and shoot somebody, and he unintentionally kills. Now, unintentionally does not mean a freak accident. Like if someone's chopping a tree and looks to the right and looks to the left and nobody's there and no one's expected to be there and he made sure that no one was there and he cuts the tree and then somebody comes flying out of a plane and just lands there and gets hit by his by his uh, tree that fell, that's that's something that he cannot control no matter what he will do. Uh, so that is not what we're referring to. Killing unintentionally means they didn't mean to kill, but there was a bit of negligence. He could have been more careful. Uh, perhaps there was no one expected to be there, but he could have looked before to see maybe someone is there. So such a person 
kills who kills a person can flee to a city of refuge. So this person does not get killed or punished, but he needs to go into exile. He needs to be um, relocated to the city of refuge or cities of refuge dispersed among the territories in Israel, at least 48 of them. And if the unintentional killer finds himself in this city, then... No one is allowed to kill him. It's a city of refuge. However, if the blood avenger finds him outside the city of refuge, a close relative, a blood avenger of the victim, finds the unintentional killer outside the city of refuge, and the blood avenger slays the murderer. He has this passionate, this passion, he wants to avenge the blood. He has no blood. Then, the blood avenger who kills the murderer, well, it's calling him a murderer, but the unintentional killer who was negligent has no blood, meaning the blood avenger is not punished for killing the unintentional killer. Because although he killed unintentionally, he didn't have the intention to kill, but he left the city of refuge on his own will and thereby gave himself up to be killed because he doesn't deserve to be killed, but if the blood avenger kills him, we're not going to do anything to the blood avenger because there was some negligence there. So we see here how harsh um, and important it is to take the preventive measures to protect other people's lives. That's the mitzvah of ma'akeh in Hebrew, the mitzvah of affixing a fence. Now, getting back to the first words of today's lesson, when you build a new house, if we mention that it's not just if you build a new, brand new house from scratch, it's even if you move into a home or you are gifted a home, you bought a home or you inherited a home. So why does the Torah say if you build a new home? Why a new home? So let's take a moment here to discuss a uh, Hasidic spiritual interpretation to the verse. Every verse in Torah has many layers. There is a simple meaning when you actually build a house of bricks and it's new, but not only new, any kind of house. But why does the Torah say new? Because this also has a meaning of la a layer of meaning which refers to a different kind of home, not a physical home of bricks and sheetrock. <laughs> but... A home for God. Source number five, one of the Rebbe's early teachings in the early 50s, when you set out to make this physical world into a home for God, our souls descend into this world on a mission to transform this world and each and every one of us, our small world, our home, our families, the people we come in contact with, the physical things and places we interact with, we set out to make this physical world a home for God, a place where God can call his home where he is comfortable. This house is considered new because spiritualizing the physical is a reversal of the order of creation. God made the physical world appear consummately physical. We 
reveal its divine essence and make it a vehicle for the spiritual. So we're doing something new. By making this world a home for God, we're doing something innovative. We're doing something new. We're building a new home because God started the opposite way. God took spiritual light. God is spiritual. And he contracted it and he hid it and appeared and it made it look physical. And our job is to revert it back sort of to spirit, to becoming spiritual, to take the physical world and do something new with it, make a innovation, take leather from a cow and make it holy by using it for a mezuzah or for tefillin or for a Torah scroll or making a blessing on a piece of chicken which was prepared according to the laws of kosher. We are infusing it with holiness. We're making it spiritual. It's not just an ordinary piece of leather. We give it a kiss. If it falls on the floor, we pick it up and we cherish it. It is holy. So that's what it means when you're building a new home because it's not just the simple meaning, the literal meaning of the words. There's also a deeper meaning. When our soul set out to this world on a mission to make this world a new home, to make a home which is new, something different, change things around, to make the physical spiritual. Source number six, what is the rule the Torah says? You gotta put up a fence in order to succeed in this mission and avoid being dragged into the materiality of the physical world. We must be sure to remain sufficiently aloof from the world. This we accomplish by setting appropriate boundaries, red lines that we do not cross. We're only here in this world to elevate and we interact with the physical in order to elevate and spiritualize it. But it's very easy to get distracted and get entangled into the physical materiality of this world. So we need to make a fence so we shouldn't fall and slip and forget our mission. We need to remember why we're here in the first place. Yes, we got to eat and drink and enjoy life. But we cannot forget about why our soul came down here. So we have to stay aloof to a certain degree to remember why we're here in the first place. Got to make a fence. There are certain things that we do not do. That is not befitting. That that goes contrary to my mission. They say a story of a man who came to the town of Lubavitch. And he lived in the city of St. Petersburg, which was a very um, different environment from the small town of Lubavitch, where all there was was a couple of houses, some muddy roads, and spirituality. And he said, you think it's a kunt, you think it's a... Um, kunt is like a trick. You think it's a... An achievement to be a chassid, to be a religious Jew and do what's right when you're in this little town. What's here? There's no distraction. You got to live like me in St. Petersburg. Oh, over there in the big city. And to do what's right, even living there, that's an achievement. You think just living in St. Petersburg is enough? You got to live in St. Petersburg and go to the theater. That's an achievement. And still do the right thing. And you think it's an achievement to sit in the theater with closed eyes. You got to open your eyes and watch any kind of movie that's being there, even not the most appropriate for a Jew, still, that is an achievement. And you think just watching it from the back row, you got to be in the front row right near the stage and still do what's right. 
You know, but that's not the right going down that path. Someone might end up saying, you think it's easy to be a Jew and not eat pork. We could eat pork and do all of the things that are contrary to our mission. And then what's left of our mission? So it's a slippery slope. We got to make fences. It's got to be a red line saying, this is immoral. This is unethical. This runs contrary to my mission. We're building a new home for God. We're building a home for God. It is a new idea. But we can't get too entangled. We can't get lost. We have to keep fences, guardrails to keep us in place. To keep us on the right track. To remember that we're only here in order to elevate and make this world a beautiful place for God. That is our first section. Let's move on to examine, to analyze these preventive measures. So what is it based on? Why can't I just do whatever I want? What if I'm just not scared of skydiving and I'm not scared to um, pet a tiger in the African safari? Can I do it? Is it just up to my fear? What if my mother says it's okay? I mean, if your mother says, <laughs> is, is it just about that? Getting permission from my mother? Or does the Torah give us guidelines? So let's take a look at source number seven. Beware and guard yourself very well. The Torah tells us, God gives us instructions. We got to be careful. God says, These are words that many signs in Israel have these words saying, Danger, do not pass. It is dangerous to proceed. These are these three words are a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Vinishmartem, Shmira means to guard. Like a babysitter in Hebrew is called a Shmar Taf, who's guarding the children, hopefully. Doing her job. To be careful, to take heed, to protect your souls. Oh, very much so. One should be exceedingly careful. The term is to guard. Hello, Brian. The term is to guard. Shmor. <clears throat> like a guard. As somebody who is hired as a guard. Brian, you can tell us about that. A guard is a shomer. Somebody who protects the field, protects the people, keeps things safe. Guard. So the children in the school, who the guard is acting as a guard, Hopefully the school has a guard. The children don't belong to him. He is guarding somebody else's children. I mean, maybe one of the children are his or hers. But most of the children were deposited in his possession, in his um, responsibility to guard them during the hours of school. They're not his. They were just given to him to guard. Similarly, God tells us we should guard our souls, our life, our health. Source Continuing in Source 7, a Shomer is a custodian who guards a possession belonging to another. Our bodies are not ours. We are guardians and need to protect it. This is the premise for the mitzvah of not just not harming others or prevent, taking preventive measures not to harm others or harm should not come upon others, but also for ourselves. We can't do it to ourselves either. 
We are a guardian over our life. Our life and body do not belong to us. They were deposited in our possession. They, we were trusted by God to guard our life. It's not ours. We need to protect it. We need to nourish it. We need to care for it. We need to bathe and eat and drink and go to the doctor and take, do everything it takes. And included in that is taking preventive measures, not to endanger ourselves, not to take risks. Torah says we got to guard. If you have somebody, some something that belongs to somebody else, you've got to be careful that it doesn't get ruined, it doesn't get extinguished, and it doesn't expire. We have a duty. Even if we're not scared, it's not about us being scared or not. It is about what is our duty, as we mentioned last week. Ask not what God can do for you. What can you do for God? What is our duty? Part of our mission is to guard this possession that God gave us. Part of guarding it is taking preventive measures. We'll identify and draw the line a little more clear soon. Source number eight. Source number eight is from the book of Chinuch. I mean, someone might say, well, everything's up to God. I could just do whatever I want. And whatever happens, well, that was God's plan. So I'll jump out of a plane. It sounds fun. And if something, God forbid, happens, that was part of God's plan. So says the Chinuch, one of the Rishonim, one of the early commentators who enumerates the mitzvot, the 630 commandments, and gives a, le- a logical explanation. Hello, Gary. We're talking about safety today. Source number eight. God created his world and built it upon the foundations of the principles of nature. Yes, miracles happen. But there is the rules of nature. The sun rises every morning and sets every evening. And decreed, God decreed, that his, that fire should burn. Yeah, miracles happen. Avraham, Abraham was thrown into the furnace and he emerged un, un, uh, you know, perfectly fine. As well as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah during the Babylonian time by King Nebuchadnezzar. But most people that jump into a fire will die and get burnt. That is the rules of nature. And a large stone which falls on the head of a man will smash his brain. If you walk near, if somebody walks near a, uh, what do they call these mountains that, you know, it says danger, falling stones. If a large stone falls on the head of man, the rules of nature which God um, built, it will smash his brain. God graced the bodies of people and blew into them a living soul with a mind. And he commanded him to guard himself from an accident, to use his brain and figure out where it's dangerous to go and where one should stay away from. As nature will act upon him if he does not guard himself from it. Nature was created by God and God created nature and God gave us a mind in order to figure out how the rules of nature work, and to stay away from danger. Safety is a very Jewish value. We grew up with a video, all, a Jewish video, all about safety. And one of the songs went like, 
Um, the Torah does demand and we must understand um, something like that, that um, to always be aware and from dangers to stay clear, something like that. This is a value and a mitzvah to guard our bodies, put on a seatbelt, to stay safe. Source number nine. So let's get into some of the, the details of this because <clears throat> if you think about it, anything we do, anything we do um, has some level of risk. You know, people die and choke eating. So should we not eat? How about drinking or swimming or uh, traveling, going to a car? There are unfortunately many accidents. People die. People get injured. So should we not do anything? People die playing sports. People get injured. So should we refrain from these things? They entail a risk. Can we go on a roller coaster? I love roller coasters, but there is a risk. How about bungee jumping? That's pretty fun. Is that allowed? So how do you draw the line? Source number nine. Let's look at the Talmud. All roads are presumed to be dangerous. Rabbi Yonah would leave a will ooh, before traveling. Rabbi Mana would leave a will before going to a heated bathhouse. So this is from the Jerusalem Talmud. This is, uh, let's say, 1700 years ago. And the rabbis are discussing... Uh, the Rabbi Yonah, before traveling, it olden day travel in Israel, there were paved roads and there were bandits in the forest. They had to travel in caravans. There was losing your way. And there was, if there was a storm, there were so many things that could have gone wrong. And there was very little communication to find yourself and so if be found. It was dangerous to travel. And yet, Rabbi Yonah would travel. But before traveling, he would leave a will. So, if he didn't come back, I guess after an extended period of time, they would know that he, um, no, he's no longer with us, and they would know what to do. Excuse me. But it doesn't say in the Talmud that it is forbidden to travel, because you got to guard your soul, you got to guard your life, so no traveling, it's, it's forbidden. No, he traveled, he was a rabbi and he traveled, that was perfectly okay, but even though he was scared, and it was dangerous, it was risky, he left a will. He did it anyway. And the same goes for Rabbi Mana, who in those days they had heated bathhouses. They had fire burning under the wooden planks where the water was uh, stored. And he went to the bathhouse to bathe in hot water, even though he was scared. And he wrote a will before going there. This was serious business. People don't just write wills every time they get into a car, every time they eat breakfast. This was a serious risk. And yet, it doesn't say it's forbidden to go to a heated bathhouse or just use cold water. No, he did go. But he wrote a will. So we see that it is permitted to do something risky. Let's take another example. Source number 10. You shall give your employee his wages on time, for he sets his life upon it. Why did he ascend a ladder, suspend himself from a tree, and risk death? 
Was it not for his wages? The Talmud says that if you have an employee, you should pay him right away. Because he, the guy even risked his life for the job. He climbed up on the tree to get the, the fruits down, climbed up high on a ladder to, to build something. He risked his life. He risked death. It's not like today that things are a little bit more safe. And even today there are dangerous jobs. Being a police officer must be uh, risky. Depending where. <laughs> Firefighters. And other jobs. Uh, sitting in a crane up there. or I mean, there's... I, I don't think I would like that kind of job every day. And yet, the Talmud does not say it's forbidden to be such a worker. The Talmud, on the contrary, uses it as a reason why you must pay him promptly. And one more example, source 11, these people have to offer thanks to God. It's called, uh, they have to bring an offering in the temple times to thank God for their survival. Those who have crossed the sea, traversed the wilderness, the desert, recovered from a serious illness, and been set free from prison. Any of these four categories, these four people need to offer thanks to God. Nowadays, we don't have a temple, we don't have sacrifices, uh, we don't get bloody, but there is a concept of saying a blessing called Hagomel, thanking God, going up to the Torah when the Torah is taken out and thanking God for this um, miracle that you were, you, had, you were in a risky situation. You know, somebody was in a car accident, somebody flew overseas, they... Make a blessing at the Torah, thanking God for being kind to him. But why doesn't it just say it is forbidden to travel the desert? It is forbidden to travel overseas. You know, nowadays it's a plane, but those then those days it was a ship, there were storms, it was dangerous, there were pirates. It doesn't say it's forbidden. It just says, once you come out of it, you should thank God. So what's the answer? Source number 12. One may perform dangerous activities if they are crucial to the operation of the world, for the functioning, to have a functioning society, certain risky jobs and activities are necessary. So one may perform dangerous activities on the condition that they are crucial. They are a necessity for the operation of the world. Anything that is dangerous but necessary for global development, such as war, is permitted. How can you send someone to war? To an army? There's a high risk of casualties. But yet it is necessary to prevent uh, mass murder, to, permit, to, to prevent, to, to protect the citizens of the country, there's going to need to be soldiers and perhaps war. It's permitted to enlist in the army. It is not forbidden for a woman to get pregnant, despite the risks, inasmuch as this is the way of the world. Maybe it should be forbidden for, people, for women to get pregnant, because... There are a certain amount of women who um, die in childbirth. 
God forbid, God should protect. We don't say that. Not just it's permitted, it's encouraged. It's a mitzvah. So think of it this way. It's a mitzvah to have children. We don't own our lives, as we said. We, it's a deposit. We are a custodian. We are a guardian over the life which God gave us. God is not just our maker. He is our owner. You know, the maker of uh, my house was somebody else, but now I'm the owner. God is not just the maker of ourselves, our bodies and our souls. He is the owner. And we're just like the bank. We're just um, guarding it. We just have making it safe. We're just uh, being trusted to care for it. So the, the, the owner told us that there are certain risks that are necessary for a functioning society to continue uh, humanity and for the functioning the operation of the world, certain risks need to be taken. So the owner, God, tells us that this is what we should do. We may do it. We should do things that are, to a certain degree, risky. God says to have children. It's the first mitzvah in the Torah, even though it's risky. But that's part of life. Life is not a risk-free. Everything, that's part of life. God didn't create a perfect world. He created a world where we do have to toil and take risks at times. So anything which is necessary for life, normal life, personally or for society, that is permitted, although there are risks. So we have to eat and drink and playing sports and those things which are um, accepted. We need to run around, we need to let out energy, we need to exercise, we need to uh, go to a hot bathhouse because it's good for hygiene, it cleans better and it's... And it's, uh, there's certain, you know, it was for health that Rabbi Mana did so. And so to traveling, it was necessary for business, for Torah study, whatever it was that he was traveling for. It was something necessary. Although there were risks, God tells us, the owner, the depositor, gives us permission, at times even encourages, like to be a police officer, or someone wants to volunteer, or, or be a firefighter. That is very much encouraged, even though there are risks, because that is necessary for a functioning society. Now, not if it's extremely risky, that's a little bit different. You know, traveling the sea when there's a a hurricane that, you know, even if it's necessary, that would not be permitted. But in normal situation where there is a risk, but it's not a grave risk, then one can take this risk if it's necessary. Not just necessary to make money, but we need people to work in coal mines because we need coal. Maybe not so much today, but even though it's dangerous, but it's necessary. Even if not that person needs the money, but it is necessary for people to work in the fields and do certain things that are just necessary for society. Now, but that does not mean that one might say, well, what if it's not necessary? So 
um, swimming. Oh, maybe I can swim in a pool. Well, maybe I shouldn't swim in the ocean. Or maybe um, I shouldn't do anything which is risky but not necessity. Maybe I shouldn't drive a car. Maybe I could, I could rather walk. So if I have a choice to walk or drive, maybe I should walk because driving is more dangerous. No, we don't do that. Even though there are people that um, get killed in car accidents, we do not have to refrain from driving. You know why? Because everyone does it. Anything which is an accepted risk taker, <laughs> meaning even if there's risk, but people trample upon the risk. That's the term the Talmud says. People trample upon the risk. Everybody does it. It is an accepted norm to do so, despite the risks involved. And even if it is not a necessity, one can do so, providing that it is not a high risk. It is a very infrequent risk, infrequent you know, occurrence that somebody would get killed. Like we see in Source 13, the sages were not concerned about infrequent risks. In such cases, one can engage in the activity, even if they do not qualify as necessities, and have confidence that God will protect. So you can walk along the beach and not be afraid that a tsunami will come and wash the person into the, into the sea, never to be seen again. Yet it happens, but it doesn't happen every day. It's very infrequent. So if you have these two things combined, that people trample upon it, and it is infrequent, then it would be permitted. So wearing a seatbelt, I mean, we're not in New Hampshire, but here, and even in New Hampshire, I believe most people still wear a seatbelt, for sure here in New York, wearing a seatbelt, well, it's not that dangerous. You might, you know, the, 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 the risk of people that don't wear seatbelts and die, maybe is not that high, but people don't trample upon this this uh, preventive measure to accept the norm and it's the law to to uh, buckle up. So that Torah would say, yeah, you got to buckle up. But something like driving a car, it also has risks, but everybody does it. And it's somewhat infrequent. Uh, infrequent, it's not clear what exactly is considered frequent or infrequent. But let's say the codifiers say about 3%. And I don't believe the numbers are up to more than 3% of car drivers get into an accident and die, or people in a car. It's less than 3%. That is considered infrequent. So most people walking along the beach will not be hit by a tsunami and die. So you can do so, and so too with eating and drinking and other activities. So the same will apply to bungee jumping. It depends. Is it something that people trample upon the wrist? Depends uh, maybe in which state and which area and which era. Uh, you know, things always evolve. If it is an activity which people trample upon the risk, it is not considered dangerous, and the chance, the risk is not too high, it's under 3%, then it would be permitted. But even if it's infrequent, but people consider it very dangerous, like uh, wing walking, walking on the wings of a plane, maybe it's not that dangerous. You know, the statistics won't tell you that, it will tell you that under 3%, uh, only under 3% die, um, but it's still considered very dangerous. If people don't just do it, then maybe it would not be permitted. So every case is unique, and if somebody wants to do such an activity, they can consult with their uh, Orthodox local rabbi to hear the Torah's uh, approach. Every every 
case is unique, but those are the rules. I think those are the general rules. So let's say uh, smoking, you know, if somebody would come and say, you know, I would like to start smoking, is it permitted? Well, it's not an infrequent danger. It is pretty high. It's way more than 3%, at least that's what the doctors are telling us, that more than 3% of smokers will uh, end up being heavily affected as a result, whether it's 50% or higher, lower, but it's definitely more than 3%. People don't trample upon it. Maybe some people do, but it's not also infrequent. you got to have both together. So taking a flight or going skiing, if those things are acceptable and the percentage of dangerous cases, of cases of, of injuries, of deaths are very low, under 3%, that would be okay. Because people fly without thinking, it's not considered dangerous, you don't have to f- sign your life away. When you uh, board a flight, other activities which you do, uh, perhaps that is an uh, indication that it is still considered dangerous by many, even if the numbers are pretty low. So to clarify, generally our lives are not ours. We are a custodian over God's deposit to us. We've got to take preventive measures. But things that are ne- necessary for life, for personal, for global Those are permitted, providing that the risk is not very high. Even things that are not necessity, if people trample upon them, meaning it's accepted to do it despite the risk, and the risk is quite infrequent, under 3%, let's say, then it would be permitted. Let's turn around, turn the page to our next uh, section here, source number 14. The Torah is so rich and has so much to share. Hello, Shelly. Welcome to our Lunch and Learn. We'll go through some, quick, uh, qu- quickly through some examples of some things which may are maybe not so well known, but are still practiced today. Uh, some of the laws of preventive measures to protect our health and life. Source number 14. One may not raise a vicious dog. If you open up Code of Jewish Law, Shulchan Aruch, the following is cited from the Talmud. One may not raise a vicious dog in his house and one may not set up an unstable ladder in the house. Again, these are things that are a setup for something bad to happen. Don't have a shaky ladder. Someone might go up or the ladder might fall. And things won't end up well. Or don't raise a vicious dog. Maybe you know how to control it. Someone comes into the house, the dog runs out. It's vicious. Even if it does not bite, but only barks loudly, lest it bark, its bark frighten a pregnant woman and cause her to miscarry. Kodo Jewish Law says, even if this dog is not going to bite, but it just has such a loud bark, and is just running around freely, then a pregnant woman might come by, get really scared, and see that it's not leashed, and that f- fright might cause her to miscarry. If the dog is restrained by a chain, it is permitted because no one is in fear of it, even if it's barking. But if somebody sees clearly that this dog is chained, 
they they are more calm. A dog which is not dangerous and does not bark need not be chained. If it's a da- not if it's a not dangerous dog and there's no barking, that is okay. It need not be chained. Need not be chained. At least that's what the code of Jewish law says. Any other uh, additional laws from from uh, other American law and so on. That's for a different uh, instructor to share with you about. This is what it says here. That's that's an example where we have to be careful. Yeah, it's enjoyable maybe to have a vicious dog for some people at least, but we have to take into consideration other people and take preventive measures, not causing any kind of damage to anybody. Source number 15, a person should not place his mouth over a drain pipe. Back in the day, people didn't have access to water so easily, and they had a, they saw a drain. Hey, I can take a drink. I'll just put my mouth on the drain pipe. So he says a person is not allowed to do so lest he swallow a leech. A leech. You don't know what's in that pipe. Water could be filled with bugs, and you drink it, besides being certain bugs that are not permitted to eat, but it can be dangerous. What is not permitted to do so? It is forbidden to place coins. In one's mouth, even if you're a child, you should not be doing this, lest there be the remnants of sweat on them, all kinds of bacteria from all kinds of people on the coins. You don't want that stuff going in your mouth. This is way before bacteria was ever discovered. This is from, uh, Maimonides tells us from the Talmud. Source 16, a person should not place food and drink. So there are, interesting, there are different kinds of dangers. There are dangers that, you know, putting a coin in your mouth, Another example, it says like cutting meat on your hand. Don't take a knife and cut meat while it's on your hand because it might just get into your finger. That would be bloody. Then there are physical dangers as a result of a spiritual spirit. A spiritual evil spirit could potentially damage a body or life. Think of demons. They could have some sort of effect on the body, at least in some situations. So it says here, a person should not place food or drink and drink under a bed where one sleeps because a harmful spirit rests upon them. So there's no prickly stuff on the food as a result, but there's a spiritual harmful spirit on food that was placed under a bed where somebody sleeps. So between the bed and the floor. As the Zohar tells us, this is a bit mystical. When a person sleeps, the spirit of impurity rests upon his body. We touched upon this in earlier lessons, that a person's soul, uh, a certain percentage of a person's soul leaves the body and in place comes during sleep and in place comes a spirit of impurity. And that impurity um, descends from the bed to the floor and any food and drink there contracts that impurity. You don't want to eat that food or drink that was under the bed. So don't store any food or drink under a bed where someone sleeps. Question is, if you're on a plane and you have some food in your bag under your seat, you know, that's not such a good idea. Maybe it's only a bed, but that's a question. Number 17. Tell me if you heard about this. If you heard, please comment One should not eat peeled garlic, onion, or egg that were left overnight because a harmful spirit rests upon them. If one leaves their roots or a bit of a peel or shell, they are permitted. This is one of those interesting, colorful things that Jewish people do. So if you peeled an onion, you cut an an onion 
and the stem, you know, where the hairs are, the root, is not there anymore, uh, it should be finished that day. It shouldn't be left overnight. So if you have just an onion cut up and put in the fridge, uh, we don't use it the next day unless it still has some of the peels on the onion. So you can cut the onion in half and part of it has a peel on it or the shell, if you, if you have a boiled egg, hard-boiled eggs, uh, you know, you just have it in a bag, shelled, that we don't, we don't eat it the next day, overnight, unless some of the shell is still on it. Or if it's cut into a salad, you know, there's salt on it, or it's mixed with other ingredients. But just a plain egg, shelled, left in the fridge, we don't eat it the next day. Similar, with same thing with a garlic. The garlic that we buy has the root a little bit there still. But if they, if it's just fully peeled, you won't eat it. Why? Says Kodo Jewish Law. Because there's some sort of evil spirit, I don't know why, I can't explain it, that rests upon this vegetable as a result and should not be eaten. Well, it's a very easy way around it. Just leave a little bit of the peel. But... This is again an example of guarding our soul, guarding our life, not doing anything potentially dangerous, whether because it's a very sharp knife, you shouldn't cut the meat or eat, put coins in your mouth, or because of some spiritual danger which can have a physical manifestation. Source number 18, fish and meat may not be cooked or eaten together. Between the fish and meat courses, it is customary to drink to cleanse one's mouth. Now, this should not be confused with dairy and meat. That is a biblical prohibition, not to cook or eat together. And that should not be served at the same meal. There has to be separate meals and sometimes hours apart. If you had meat, wait six hours before having dairy. But fish and meat or fish and chicken can be served in the same meal, but we don't cook it together in the same dish. You can use the same pot if you clean it between, after you uh, make your meatballs, you can clean it out and make some fish. Uh, and you can serve it at the same meal, but we don't eat it on the same plate with the same fork because there might be some leftover fish or meat on the plate. So typically in a Shabbos meal, for example, Friday night, first we'll have the fish course. We'll have fish, gefilte fish or salmon, and then we'll take away the plates and the for fish fork and then bring a bowl of soup with some chicken soup or have a plate of chicken or cholent with meat and stuff like that. New plates, new forks, new knives. And as we mentioned, it is customary to have a drink to clean your mouth, clean your hands. Some people will be extra careful between the fish and the meat. Or if you have meat first, you can have the fish after. You can keep going back and forth as long as they're different plates. Um, they're not actually being cooked or eaten together. It's not as strict as meat and milk. It's, uh, it's not a biblical prohibition. It is brought in the Talmud and brought in Code of Jewish Law, but it is in the category of what's called Sakana. It is the dangers of the body, just like we don't eat food from under a bed, or we won't um, put coins in our mouth, and so on. We should not eat fish and meat or fish and chicken together. Number 19, this matter evokes a person's sins. What's that? Endangering oneself by sitting next to an inclined wall that is about to collapse 
as that leads to an assessment of one's status and merits. Here's an, the Talmud gives us some insight into why it is so important to be careful, not just because we've got to guard our, our life, but if we sit near an inclined wall that looks like it's about to collapse or go into a, uh, a house, you know, a place of ruins where dangerous things might fall or a rickety bridge... Um, God, well, you sort of might need a miracle for you to be saved in that situation. So that evokes um, some scrutiny from God to say, hey, is this person really deserving uh, to be watched out for and, and not get harmed? Because, you know, there's this concept of, how, how, why do we say a prayer when we travel? Uh, we say we say a prayer called Tefillah Sederach, that travel is prayer, that God should protect us. Because, uh, God should always protect us, but when we're in a situation where we need extra merits to be protected because there's a dangerous situation, so then, oh, oh this person is in a dangerous situation. Now we need, to, we need to see, is this guy worthy of being saved from this danger? There's no danger, so then, no, you know, the guy can go sort of unnoticed by God, if you might say, because there's no danger present. But... If there is a uh, risky situation, then the Talmud says that evokes um, attention from God to scrutinize and assess, is this person worthy or not? We don't want that. We want, we want, to, we want to be saved no matter, uh, we want to be healthy no matter and alive no matter if we deserve it or not. So therefore, we should stay away from dangerous situations as much as possible. Source number 20, it is forbidden to utter Threats of disaster. There is a covenant established with our lips. One should not say, were he alive, he would have arrived here by now. So if, we're wait, if you're waiting for someone to arrive and someone says, hey, it's been so long, you know, if he was still alive, he would have came here by now. That's not so nice because the guy might be alive. And by saying that the guy is not alive, there is a term, it's actually from a verse, that bris krusel is for sign. There's like a covenant with the lips. That there's the world of action, and there's also the world of speech. And in a certain realm, the world of speech is true and has an impact, uh, more on a subtle level. But we shouldn't even other utter disasters on somebody else that we don't wish to really on on them. We should be careful how we speak. Um, we shouldn't say bad things. We have we say God forbid, you know. We should we should speak Adel. We shouldn't speak um, in, in a way on some on somebody that we do not want that thing to actually happen. So that's another way of guarding our life. So these are some examples. There are many more. These are some important examples that are brought in Code of Jewish Law. Let's move on to our final section for today and wrap up today's lesson. Uh, let's talk about some things f- with children, parents and children. We have an obligation to educate children uh, for Torah study. Source number 21. A child may be transferred from one Torah teacher to another Torah teacher. So, you know, it's not like it is today. Such uh, professional and organized yeshivas. Uh, you know, you had a teacher gathered together with some students. So if you wanted to transfer your child from one teacher, maybe to a better teacher or, well, better suited for your child, you can do so. This applies when both are in the same city and there is not a river between them. Alohawi. However, a child should not be forced to travel from city to city. 
or even from one side of the river to the other in the same city, unless there is a strong bridge, which is not likely to fall readily over the river. So it's very important. You're trying to teach this child Torah and this teacher might be better. But if it's in another city and it's dangerous for the child to travel, you know, travel in those days was dangerous. And from city to city, going through the forest, going through a place where they could be attacked, lose your way. Especially, uh, even if it's in the same city, but if there's a bridge and the bridge is not so sturdy and it is like, you know, these bridges, they were, you know, man-made by not necessarily the most professional people and it would be dangerous so the child is not permitted to be transferred because of the danger. Got to be careful. Yes, it's, it, it's for the purpose of better Torah study, but if there's a risk involved and it's not a necessity in the situation, it should be avoided. 22. Notifying a child that he will be punished in the future might agitate the child and cause him to harm himself. This is from Tractate Smachot. This is going back hundreds of years. And the the, the, the tractate tells us that if someone tells a child, hey, you're going to get punished, the child doesn't know what the punishment is going to be, and he could freak out. Who knows what they're going to do to him? You know, back in the day, ch- child, uh, punishment for children was a bit different than it is today. If it is necessary to punish, and it's not always necessary to, to do uh, such extreme measures, but if it's necessary, the punishment should be carried out immediately. Not to scare the child. You're going to be punished tomorrow when you get home. Who knows what's going to happen? He go, he go crazy and he can harm himself. You might think harming himself would be a better way, at, either out of uh, anxiety or it might be better than suffering the, the punishment later on. He doesn't know what the punishment's going to be. So you punish, you punish. Do it right away. Don't scare the child or don't tell the child that you're going to punish him later. You don't know... That's not, that's not, that's a preventive measure in order to protect this child's life. Don't scare him. And let's conclude with one more idea. And it's brought in the Talmud, source 23. A father is obligated to circumcise his son, redeem him, teach him Torah, take a wife for him, and teach him a profession. Some say that he is also obligated to teach him to swim. To teach him to swim. So that's another preventive measure, teaching a child to swim. Keep them safe. They know how to swim. If they're in a situation where their life is at risk, they'll know how to save themselves. Save others, perhaps. But let's uh, let's talk about the lesson from this passage in the Talmud. So six things are said here. Number one, to circumcise if it's a boy, to redeem him. We had once a class about if it's the firstborn is a boy, then there is a mitzvah to redeem the son on the 30th day from the Kohen and teach him Torah. So those are religious obligations, parental obligations. Uh, from parents to children, teach them Torah, make sure they have a circumcision, and redeem them if, if uh, that applies. The second three, excuse me, are more societal obligations, more social um, 
secular, secular obligations. To marry them off, find a wife for him, help him get married. To teach him a skill, teach him a profession, should be able to make some uh, some money. And some say to teach him how to swim. So it doesn't say uh, you know to feed him or her to to give them clothes, a home, hugs and kisses, love. And many of the other things that parents do, because this is not just about what we need to do, a parent's obligation. It's more like what their what what are the parental goals? What are the primary goals of a parent besides raising them religiously as a Jew? But uh, what does it mean to raise children? What is a responsible parent's job obligation in raising the children? So there are three general categories. One is Source number 24, we have it spelled out. Our obligation to marry off our children, it doesn't just mean, um, you know, making them a shidduch, finding them a spouse, or helping them find a spouse, or once they do, to find the venue and pay for the wedding and and uh, stuff like that. Marrying them off, or however term you want to say it, helping them get married, means raising marriageable adults. Parents are, you know, a child is born, they are very, very um, dependent on you, on the parents, as an infant. And as they grow, our job as parents is to help them mature and become self-sufficient and become independent. We don't have to help them go to the bathroom and get dressed and eat and all the things we should let them, let them soar on their own. And part of the marrying them off, sort of, is helping them become a self-sufficient, mature individual who is suitable to get married and be responsible as a spouse, as a parent. So marriageable adults, men and women who are capable of maintaining mature relationships, being um, caring to another and being uh, responsible and so on. Selfless. That's number one. The second one is teaching him a profession. That is another parental goal. Teaching our children a profession allows them, hopefully, material and financial self-sufficiency that they can... The best thing we can give our children is the ability for them not to be dependent on us by teaching them a skilled profession, helping them get into college and learn a profession and eventually to be able to sustain themselves and be self-sufficient and not have to always come on to the parents. They can go out and buy their own home and start life on their own, you know, in a way. That's, that's our goal, that they shouldn't always be dependent on us. We can help them out. But not, uh, you know, they should be able to be self-sufficient. That's by teaching them a skill. Hopefully they can find a job and move on. But what has swimming got to do with this? What is the goal of swimming to teach them how to swim? What does that represent? It, it didn't seem to be a very common uh, sport or exercise to go swimming. You didn't have pools like we have it today. It, it didn't, we don't see it. That's such a, an important thing that the Talmud has to tell us. And how is that a goal? You know, if they didn't know how to swim, then life was just not, 
not uh, it wasn't self-sufficient. So what does this represent? So Rashi tells us that the swimming is not just that the kid can swim. The swimming is in order to save his life in the following situation. Source 25, the child might one day embark upon a ship that will sink and his life will be in danger if he does not know how to swim. So Rashi is referring to a situation which rarely happens. He might be on a ship. The ship might sink. Okay, maybe back in the day it happened more often. And if he doesn't know how to swim, he might die and drown. So teaching him how to swim will save his life. Now, what does this represent? What is the idea here? Not everyone travels by sea. You know, Some people live and they never travel by sea. Especially in olden days, travel was not as it is today. Not everyone who travels by sea is shipwrecked. And yet, a person must give their child the tools for self-sufficiency to the extent that they can deal and cope with the unexpected things that they might encounter in life. Nonetheless, even though it's quite rare, there is a parental goal for the parents, an obligation for parents to teach the children how to swim, meaning that even though this situation might not really happen, it doesn't happen often, the parents should teach them how to swim because it might happen and how to deal with that situation. So parents' goal is to raise, raise self-sufficient children, marriageable uh, independent in, uh, in work with a skill as well as how to deal with situations which are difficult and unexpected. What are you going to do if the ship wrecks? What are you going to do? Well, let me teach you how to swim. And swim can mean swimming in the water and swim can mean what do you do if you have a, you know, I can teach you to drive a car, but that's not enough. I'll teach you what to do if there's a flat tire. Here's how you deal with the situation. You try, either you have a spare, this is how you do it, you, you, um, or you can call for help. You know, give, give them the tools to deal with and cope with situations which are not ideal and maybe unexpected and difficult and challenging. Teach them to swim in the stormy waters. Life is not always perfect. We don't have to get bent out of shape. If not everything goes the way we planned, that we don't get everything we want right away in life. Part of parental goals is not just to teach them to be a mensch and be marriageable and to be able to have a skill, but also to be able to deal with the challenges and unexpected situations of life. That's a deeper meaning to this mitzvah of teaching a child how to swim, but generally it's a one of those preventive measures that a father should teach his child to swim to keep them more safe. That wraps up today's lesson titled Safety First. Getting back to scuba diving and wing walking and all these kind of dangerous things it has to fit into the criteria, into the rules that we set forth, the Torah sets forth for us how we should protect the gift that was entrusted to us to guard our bodies and our life. Any questions? We'll wrap up today's lesson. Feel free to share this post so others can benefit from it as well. All of our 
weekly lessons are also uploaded on our podcast titled Lunch and Learn on the different apps. You can search my name or Lunch and Learn and it should come up. Thank you for joining us and tune back in next week, hopefully for another lesson. Um, so we got to live life. If it's an accepted risk, we can take it, especially if it's a necessity and the infrequent. But otherwise, we should be careful. We shouldn't go crazy. Part of life in this world is to take risks. That's the way God set it up. Zeigesund, be healthy and take care of the life God gave each and every one of us.